Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. The topic this morning is, Does the Truth Easily Offend You? And before you get offended, (laughs) we're just walking through Galatians and seeing what Paul has to say. I remember a lady that came up to me one time and she said, you know, I don't like Paul. I said, you don't? She said, no, Paul's mean. Paul doesn't love people. I said, well, why do you think he started all those churches? You know, all dogs don't go to heaven. It's people that go to heaven. So why do you think he started all those churches if he didn't care about people? The love for God gave Paul a love for people. But Paul was never willing to compromise to please people. And so sometimes Paul became offensive to people because of his stand for the truth. In in fact, one of the problems for a preacher is that people sometimes misunderstand a passion for truth as a lack of compassion for people. But the reason that any pastor worth his salt has a passion for truth is because he cares about the people he's preaching to. It is like Paul said, he wants Christ to be formed in us and that we, that we present every man complete in Christ. Not just a few, not just those in leadership, but that every man, every person be completed and presented in Christ complete. And one of the amazing things about the Word of God, it is the inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative Word of God. And at times in that Word, God allows the prophet or the preacher or the writer to get personal. And that's where we are with Paul today. Paul has been very confrontational. He's been arguing like a lawyer. And now he shows his heart. He shows his side of his heart where he is concerned about these Galatians. He's having, if you will, a family talk. He wants to remind them. He wants to warn them. He wants to encourage them. And and the reason that I think this passage is important is because any time God is working in a church or in individuals' lives, you need to be aware that at the same time the devil is working. That the devil is not sitting back saying, oh, look, there's a church that made a movie. Oh, look, there's a church that's impacting the world. Oh, there's a church. Well, let's just leave them alone and go bother somebody else. Our spiritual antennas need to be up in times of blessing more than they are in times of adversity. Because in reality, it's harder to stay on the mountain than it is to get to it. And God is blessing us and God is moving in some incredible ways. And we should not assume that the devil will not try to do everything he can to undermine what God is doing in this place. He can do it in big ways or in small ways. We need to look for it. And so my spiritual antenna is always up when God's moving because I realize that there will always be something that could disrupt the unity of the church. I realize that there's something that could come up where people would undermine or undercut or that we would get into, I'm of Paul and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Apollos. Or we could say, well, I like this ministry, but I don't like that ministry. I like this staff member. I don't like that staff member. And and we've had times when those things have happened. And that's always divisive to the gospel. 
Paul is now changing his tone. He's not arguing with them anymore. He's appealing to them in a personal way, beginning in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Drop down to verse 16. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul's first concern was that his labor would have been in vain in verses 9 through 11. Paul had feared that after all his praying and all his work and all his investment in these Galatian believers that somehow they would go backwards. Somehow they would forsake the fullness of the gospel. Somehow that they would forsake being sons and go back to being like slaves to the law. That they would forget what God had delivered them from. And so Paul is writing with a, with a great concern, and, and any pastor, any leader, any Sunday school teacher has seen this happen with people. They get on fire for God, and then all of a sudden they, they get into something else, or they, they want to add some rules, or they want to do something else, and, and they begin to fall away, and, and then they can't be happy, and then they know better, and then this happens and that happens, and, and Paul is worried about it. Paul is concerned that these people have come under the gospel of grace and suddenly they want to go back to the law. They want to go back to a system. They want to go back to rules and regulations, to ceremonies and to the keeping of days. And Paul says, if I'd labored in vain, that you haven't grown any more than that, that, that you think that the old way is a good way, and not the gospel. Have I labored in vain over you? And I, I can tell you, it, it, I would be less than honest if I said, when I see people that do that, it doesn't break my heart. No shepherd can watch somebody walk down a wrong path and not be concerned about where that path takes them. No one can. And so Paul is say, saying, I'm concerned here. I'm concerned that now that I am away, that you're going to go back and you're going to let these Judaizers influence you and manipulate you. And, and I want to give you three reasons this morning why it should concern you as a member of a Sunday school class, as a member of a church, why it should concern you when people walk away, when people get an I know better, when people think that they found something that you don't have, when, when something doesn't happen like it's supposed to, and people drift out of the church or drop out of the church or whatever happens, that there's three reasons why it ought to concern you. Number one, it's a rejection of the light given them. It's a rejection of the light given them. You have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God got to know you, Paul says, and you've got to know God. What's better than that? Paul is asking them a question. If God got to know you, and then you got to know God, what's better than knowing God? What's better than loving God? He's dealing with intimacy here, and he says, how can you go back in light of all that you've heard, in light of all that you've seen, in light of all that God has done? How can you walk away? 
Paul says they've rejected the light. Why? They want to get away from the light. They don't want to sit under the spotlight because where there's light, there's revelation. And revelation typically is here's what I need to do to change. Secondly, it's a rejection of the work done on your behalf. It's a rejection of the work done on your behalf. I fear for you, he says in verse 11, that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Phillips paraphrases it. Frankly, you stagger me. You make me wonder if all my efforts over you have been wasted. The message paraphrases it. I'm afraid that all my hard work among you has gone up in a puff of smoke. The New Living paraphrases it. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. And, and if anything, Paul had labored to exhaustion. If you read Acts 13 and 14, he had labored to exhaustion in this church to establish this church, to get this church grounded before he moved on, to, to deal with them and to help them to stand and be the church that Christ wanted them to be. Thirdly, it's a rejection of leadership that once attracted them. Verse 16, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul says to them, you used to love me, but you don't love me anymore because you love the Judaizers. And that broke Paul's heart. You've fallen in love with the Judaizers. You've fallen in love with these legalists that don't love you. They're just trying to use you. You see, most people, now let's admit it, most people want a strong leader. What are we looking for in a president of the United States? We want a strong leader. We don't want a wimp. We don't, we don't want somebody that can't make a decision. We want a strong leader. And then when we get one, we want to kill him. You know, I, t I can tell you this. Nobody in the military wants a captain or a major or a colonel or a general that doesn't have any guts. They want to know, if you're taking me out there to put my life on the line, I want to know that you understand what you're doing, and I want to know you're willing to stand with me. That's what they want to know. And, and what, what happens is, in our politically correct country, which infiltrates the church, by the way, what happens is we want somebody to tell it like it is until they tell it like it is and it's not like we want it to be and then we want somebody to tell it like we want it to be. And so we are the crowd of itching ears. Tell me what I like to hear, not what I need to hear. Let me ask you a question. Do you always tell your children what they like to hear? Do you? Why would you expect a preacher to tell you what you always like to hear? Why would you expect God to tell you what you would always like to hear? See, the same principle you apply in your home, there's sometimes when you have to put the hammer down. That principle applies in the church and it applies in your personal Christian life. They were rejecting the leadership of Paul. Here's Paul. They wouldn't have even been in existence without Paul. But now... They've gotten too big for Paul. You know, that happens. Somebody all of a sudden hears some TV preacher and they think, oh, you know, man, my, my preacher's just not as good as that TV preacher and, and uh, you know, my, my, my preacher's not as sharp. Well, listen, if, if I got edited as much as they get edited, I'd sound better. 
but mine is pretty much just out there. What you see is what you get. I mean, we do very little editing. It's just kind of out there. I mean, if I took 45 minutes and got it down to 20, I'd be slick as ice, man. I'm telling you, I could. I could even smile a lot, but I'm not going to. <laughs> they get a preacher on TV, and, they, and that preacher typically won't lie, but they'll distort the scriptures to fit what makes a crowd show up. Now listen to me. God's man is never interested in a crowd. He's interested in a congregation. We can do a dog and pony show and have a crowd, but that's not a church. It's not size, it's sort. What are we trying to build? What does it represent? Or somebody will get a book. Somebody will hand them a book and say, here, you need to read this. Read this book. It'll change your life. I want to tell you, folks, I've read a lot of books, and they're great books, but this is the book that changes your life. Amen. It's not any other book. The reason that we have a canon of Scripture, the reason that the church picked the canon of Scripture after years of looking at it and got it down to the books that are contained in what we call the Bible is because some of the books were spurious, some of them were silly, some of them were filled with heresy, some of them were contradictory, but the church came up with the canon. Why? Because the Bible is written to the church. It's not for your individual appetite as much as it is for the body of Christ. And that's a crucial thing in understanding the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Is you have to understand who the book is written to. So there's this concern over their lack of discernment, verse 17. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that the, you will seek them. But it is good always to be eager, eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. I just wrote something in my notes on verse 17. And if you've been in church any time at all, you know this. The Judaizers were having the meeting after the meeting. You know what I'm talking about? Well, here's what happened. Now, let's go out in the parking lot and decide how we want to interpret that. They were having the meeting after the meeting. And he said, they're trying to shut you out. Literally, that means they're trying to lock a door and build a barrier between you and I. Paul says they're trying to build a barrier. They're trying to shut you out. And they seek you, not commendably. Why? Because they were seeking them to justify their position. They were seeking them to justify their commitment that it was grace plus the law, that it was grace plus works. And so they're trying to draw them in and to lock them out of God's blessings. And this happens in churches all over the planet. People come in and say, you know, we need to have another Bible study. We need to do something different. We need to get a little more. We need to go a little further. And they come in and, they, and then they start infiltrating the church. And then they start pulling people out and dividing people into pockets. It happens. It's happened for 2,000 years. Don't be surprised by it. It's nothing new. Because I want to tell you, when you get your eyes off Jesus, every idea is a good idea. And so Paul is concerned that there was something other than God that was on the agenda. 
And he loved these Galatians. And the Judaizers were up to no good. And they lacked discernment. Paul says, these so-called teachers want to drive a wedge between me and you. And he says, I am perplexed about you. I can't figure it out. I can't understand it. Because see, with Paul, it was never about him. It was always about the gospel. John Stott, in his commentary on Galatians, gives some characteristics that a congregation should have toward a pastor. And this is a good test, whether you're out visiting somebody or whether you are new to a community or whatever. This is a good test for how you figure out what church that you need to be a part of. Number one, their attitude toward him should not be determined by appearance. Their attitude toward him should not be determined by appearance. Oh, well, he's too old. Oh, well, he's too young. Oh, well, he's, he's, he's kind of ugly. Oh, well, he's too good looking. You don't determine by voice or by appearance or by style what church you go to. That's a wrong way to choose a church. You don't do it by appearance. Secondly, their attitude should not be determined by their private theological whims. John Stott's probably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, still alive. He's in frail health today. He lives in England. This is what he says. Paul became an enemy to the Galatians simply because they did not like the truths he was teaching. A congregation should be aware of assessing their minister according to their own subjective doctrinal fancies. It's important. Not by our theological whims. Hey, you know what? We all differ on something. But what brings us together is the cross. And we come together at the cross, and our secondary issues don't matter if we're level at the cross. Amen? Thirdly, their attitude should be determined by the pastor's loyalty to, to the apostolic message. By the pastor's loyalty to the apostolic message. In other words, is he preaching the word of God? Is he committed to the scriptures? Does he long for Jesus to be exalted? Does he long to point people to the resurrected Christ? Is he teaching the word of God without apology? Here's what Stott says. Frequently, what interests a contemporary congregation is the preacher's technique, mannerisms, or voice, how long he preaches for, and whether they can hear him, understand him, and agree with him. Most congregations today could be more alert, more humble, and more hungry in listening to the exposition of God's Word. Now, at the same time, Stott gives some warnings for the pastor, and his primary warning for the pastor is this, that the pastor should be preoccupied with the spiritual progress of his people, not with himself. That his number one goal and his number one purpose should be not to use or exploit people, but to try to point them to Jesus, to deflect from him and to point to Jesus. That's why you will never hear me saying this is Brother Michael's church. Or this is Michael's church. It's not mine. It's his. It's not ours. It's his. This church belongs to Jesus Christ. It will exist after we're gone. It existed before we came. And as long as it is focused on Jesus Christ as the sole authority of our lives, and we are surrendered to his lordship, God can bless us. If we chase any other tangent, we'll lose the blessing. 
of what God wants to do with us. John Brown said, when such pastors abound, the church flourishes. The church needs to listen and learn. The pastor needs to lead and labor, and both need to keep their focus on God. J.H. Jowett said, the gospel of a broken heart demands the ministry of bleeding hearts. As soon as we cease to bleed, we cease to bless. Finally, his concern was that Christ be formed in them. My children with whom I am in, again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. God's looking for Christ to be formed in us. The legalists were looking for rules and regulations, observances of special days and feast days to be formed in them. Paul said, I want Christ to be formed in you. Now here's what's important and I want you to listen very carefully because if you do, it helps you to understand why we gather together as a church. Most of us, we take our Bible and we read it individually. When we go Psalm 1, I'm just opening, Psalm 112. Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And we say, that's about me. That's what God wants me to do. And we read the Bible as an individual. But the Bible was not written to individuals. The Old Testament was written to a nation the New Testament was written to a church. It is not just me, it's us. And if you lose that, you'll come up with your own interpretation and your subjective theological whims because you think the Bible is about you, and it's not. It's about us and what we do for the glory of God. In fact, here's what we do. We'll go down and we'll read it and we'll think, well, well, that's, that's written to me. Galatians is written to me. No, Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. Galatians was written to the church in Galatia. Philippi, Philippians was written to the church in Philippi. And those letters circulated among all the churches. The letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. They were written to tell the churches how they were supposed to live and how they were supposed to act. They are not individual books. The Psalms are not individual Psalms as much as they are the hymn book of the Hebrew people. Now, we are the secondary audience. The Bible was written first to them. Then we receive the benefit of that. Does that make sense? You don't read the Bible like God wrote the Bible just for you. God wrote the Bible for its original audience. You need to know who that is. Who is he talking to? Was he talking to Israel? Was he talking to the church? Who is he talking to? There are some individual letters in the Bible, but the bulk of Scripture is written to the corporate body. And we tend to read it individualistically and subjectively and read you and your as second person singular, and it's not. When you see you and your in the Bible 721 times, it's in the plural. Paul was from the south. It means you all. When you read, listen, this will help you. When you read you 
and you're in the Bible, it's y'all. Y'all need to do something about this. Not just you individually, but us collectively. Now, when you do that, then iron sharpens iron. And we encourage one another, and we love one another, and we pray for one another, and we build up one another, and we forgive one another, and we bear one another's burdens. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about us. And so I don't live in isolation. I'm not a Lone Ranger Christian. I I don't live on a mountain meditating on my navel, trying to get holy by crawling into a hole. I I live in the context of a corporate body where we rub shoulders with one another and we don't always agree and we don't always see eye to eye. But when we look at Jesus, there's no conflict. That's where we live. That's how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live with this in mind that, that God has written a book. It is for me but it was first for them. And it's not only for me, it's for the person sitting to my left and the person sitting to my right. It's for us corporately. That's why the scripture says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's why all the one another's in the Bible. Not that just Christ is formed in you, but that Christ is formed in us collectively. Paul was not just perplexed about an individual, he was perplexed about the church that they were going down the path of legalism, following the Judaizers, listening to people that are saying, no, add works to the gospel, add circumcision, add the obedience to the law, add all of that. And Paul's saying, you know that's not it. Why are you going there? And Paul says, I'm hurting because I, I don't see Christ being formed in you. Now, this is what I love about the Bible. Paul was not trying to form the Apostle Paul Theological Seminary. Aren't you glad? Because then Peter would have felt compelled to form the Apostle Peter Theological Seminary. And John would have felt compelled to form the Apostle John Theological Seminary. And Thomas doubted whether he should have, but he probably would have formed the Apostle Thomas Theological Seminary. And Andrew would have said, I've got a seminary, but it's not as big as my brother's. And we would have schisms and divisions. It is that Christ would be formed in us. Paul wasn't trying to form himself in people. He was trying to form Christ in people. He was seeking to take people to Christ-likeness. And that's what you ought to do whether you're a Sunday school teacher or you're a dad and a mom trying to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You ought to take them to Christ's likeness. John Calvin said, If ministers wish to do anything, let them labor to form Christ, not to form themselves in their hearers. Let them labor to form Christ, not themselves, in their hearers. I asked Warren Wiersbe one time, why don't you have a study Bible? You know, Wiersbe study Bible. You ever seen all these study Bibles got people's names on them? Thompson chain reference, Schofield Bible, MacArthur Bible, 
this Bible, that Bible, got all these Bibles. I've had people say to me, man, I love my so-and-so Bible. You know why? Because they love the notes more than they love the Word. I've talked to people that have a King James Schofield that actually think the words of Schofield are inerrant. That's heresy. That's not even close to the ballpark of truth. So I asked Warren, I said, why do you not have a Bible with your name, your study notes in it? You mean you've written books on the B-series. Why don't you have a Wearsby study Bible? He said, no man has the right to put his name above holy Bible. No man. Any man that is more important than the God-man becomes an idol. And it may look like Jesus, smell like Jesus, walk like Jesus, and talk like Jesus, but it won't be Jesus because it'll be idolatry in a subtle form because Christ is not being formed in us. Someone else is being formed in us. I don't want to grow up and be like Ron Dunn. I don't want to grow up and be like Vance Habner. I don't want to grow up and be like anybody else. I want to grow up and be Michael Cat, full of Jesus. That's what I want. So that when people look at me, hopefully somewhere before I finish this road, somebody can say, that man knows Jesus. Not he knows people, not he knows stuff, not that he knows systems or theologies, not that he knows books, not that he knows positions, not that he knows his denomination, but that man knows Jesus. Would you look at this quote that's coming up on the screen by Jonathan Edwards? I go out to preach with two propositions in mind. First, every person ought to give his life to Christ. Second, whether or not anyone else gives him his life, I will give him mine. As Martin Luther would say, here I stand. I can do no other. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.